Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. Thanks for joining us here on the Wednesday show. We're going to play off National Signing Day. We're going to talk about, you know, everything we do here on the Survivor Show is about the playoff. But, I mean, what? where does all this start? It starts from recruiting. And so we're, Shahan and I are just going to give uh, the three teams we think have been overachieving in recruiting and three that have been underachieving. And it's based off this Wednesday, this last late signing period for the class of 2022. Of course, you guys know most of the class was signed in December, but we could take recent history into account because one class does not make a trend. So we'll start with the team that we think is the number one overachiever in recruiting right now. And Shahan, it starts with the team that has the number one class in the country this year. And I still say I get a little thrill. I think our listeners know this, that you are a national writer for CBS Sports, where I was like Googling Texas A&M number one class, and a CBS Sports story came up, and I clicked on it. I was reading it, and I was like, it's Shahan. It, it made me feel famous to, to be reading your story on a national website about that. So you've been writing about that today. I mean, however you slice it, this Texas A&M class – you said is like the highest rated class ever. I guess the Aggies have to be the overachievers, right? Yeah, I, I don't know how you could say anything else, honestly. Uh, here's the thing, right? I, I think that people remember Texas A&M so much after 2012. They remember, you know, Kevin Sumlin put together a number three recruiting class. He had Miles Garrett. He had all these great players. He had five-star quarterbacks coming through. This is not Texas A&M historically. Texas A&M has won 10 win season since 1998. They haven't won 10 games or sorry, they haven't won a conference championship since 1998. Like this is not normal for them. And I think that it's a, a testament to Jimbo Fisher, uh, the resources that Texas A&M has given him and the staff that he's put together that all of a sudden they're here with three straight top 10 recruiting classes, including the number one recruiting class of all time. It, in, which includes, by the way, the craziest defensive line group that you'll maybe ever see, right? Three five-star kids, Shamar Stewart, Gabriel Brownlow-Dindy, and Walter Nolan, all in the top 15, I believe, players. Like, that's crazy. This this does not happen. And this is not something that just started with this one recruiting class. This is really going back uh, to 2019 as well. So they've done a tremendous job over the past four classes. They have a whole roster now that have basically been part of top 10 classes. And from a talent perspective, I, I mean, that's the reason why they have to be in this conversation heading forward. You know, the, the recent years, we know the SEC dominates everything in college football. But it's been Bama and then in recruiting. And then it was Georgia. Georgia sort of started 
creeping up toward Bama-like levels in recruiting. And then you look this year, and it's like Texas A&M, Bama, and Georgia at the top. And guess what? Georgia started creeping up on Bama in recruiting, and the result was Georgia beat Bama in a national title game. The path that Georgia was on has been on. Once Kirby Smart got it rolling a little bit, you saw it was like success, and then it bred some recruiting stuff, and that bred more success. And Georgia can recruit with anybody right now. There's no reason to think that the recruiting success that Texas A&M has been stacking will lead them anywhere other than exactly where it led Georgia, which was to the, to a national championship, to the top of the college football world. Why would this be any different? Shouldn't we be expecting Texas A&M in the playoff next year, this year, next year, the year after that? This is what they do now. Yeah, I mean, I think that for Texas A&M, I mean, when they hired Jimbo Fisher, that was always what they said. I mean, what they gave Jimbo Fisher a plaque with a blank year on it saying you're going to be a national champion at some point. And that's always been the goal. Basically, Texas A&M is trying to see, you know, can we buy a national championship? But I'm not going to get into the idea of whether that money's going to the players. That's completely irrelevant to me. I don't care. But, you know, when they decided to buy Jimbo Fisher from Florida State, that was the plan. That was the hope. And they've done everything along the way that they need to to do it. Now, I still want to see Texas A&M's offense be a net plus for them. I still want to see them have, uh, you know, good quarterback play with somebody other than Kellen Mond. I still want to see them put a receiver into the NFL since Mike Evans, right? I mean, they have, to me, based on the amount of talent that they've had, I feel like they've underachieved with their offensive talent, but they've had it. They've had it in spades, and defensively, they've certainly maximized in a big way, and even though Mike Elko's off to Duke, uh, it seems like they're going to do the same thing with DJ Durkin. So I, I think that the only expectation for Texas A&M now is they have to make the playoff at some point in the next couple of years. They have to win a national championship or really it's hard to see all of this as anything other than a failure. So they're getting the best players in Texas, which is a great place to start, but it's fascinating. The Lincoln Riley thing, Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma for USC. I'm, I'm always fascinated by when a coach establishes a reputation and melds who he is, his style, what he does with the school and it becomes one and the same. And it's like, this was this blue blood program. And then this guy showed up and he did it a certain way. And now that's how we do it. Like it becomes the same thing. And then when you pull them apart, it's like, well, who keeps the reputation? So Lincoln Riley leaves Oklahoma and goes to USC and he's just going to do what he did in Oklahoma at USC. And Oklahoma is still great, but they have to revamp who they are. Jimbo Fisher did his thing, won a national championship at Florida State, goes to Texas A&M, and basically has been able to take all of that with him. Florida State might come up later in this podcast when we talk about underachievers. They've fallen off a cliff. They're still Florida State. They're still the place where Bobby Bowden built a dynasty. They've fallen off a cliff, cliff without Jimbo. Not only did they sign all the best players in Texas, they signed the best player in Tennessee. Texas A&M signed the two best players in Florida. Why is Texas M signing the two best players in Florida? Because Jimbo took his seminalness. He took that and left the state and retained it that there are kids in Florida being like, yeah, I want to go play for that guy. I'm going to go to Texas when there should Miami, Florida State, and Florida should be getting those kids. It has been remarkable what he's done. It really has been. 
And I think that this is the blessing and curse of college football is that right now, obviously recruiting is the lifeblood of the sport in a lot of ways. Kids only remember what just happened because you might be thinking, okay, you know, uh, why don't they remember the great Nebraska teams? Why don't they remember uh, at Oklahoma, our national championship team? It's because they weren't alive. They literally weren't alive when some of this stuff happened. They don't, they weren't alive to see Tennessee win a national championship. They weren't alive to see Michigan win a national championship. And so, you know, if, if you're wondering why does some of this history stuff not move them as much as it moves me, it's because they weren't there. And that's the nice thing. The other way for Texas A&M is kids don't remember Texas A&M being mid. They don't remember them being an average program. They remember them as the program of Johnny Manziel. And so that's the nice part about it is that you can flip that switch the other direction and uh, and sort of leverage that in a big way. So this has been huge for Texas A&M. They've managed to completely rebuild the reputation of their program among kids, which is more important than than rebuilding the reputation among older people, right? I mean, it just is. And so ultimately, if Texas A&M goes and wins a national championship, it's like Clemson, right? We think of Clemson as a championship caliber program because that's what we know it as in the modern era. It doesn't matter what happened in the 90s and early 2000s. All that matters is what happens now. And Texas A&M is the program of now. All of this melds nicely with our idea about could Nick Saban win a national championship at your school? Because like we've seen, we're seeing proof. Jimbo is not Nick Saban. And what, but Texas A&M, he could have gone to any of 20 schools. There wasn't anything particularly special about Texas A&M. I'm not so sure. I mean, other than that, it's in Texas where there's a lot of great talent. But I think he could have gone to Auburn and maybe done the same thing. I think he maybe could have gone to South Carolina and done the same thing. All right, let, let, let's not let, let's not go crazy here. Let's not let's not do the South Carolina thing again. It's when you it's it's uh, the commitment of the school matters because the whole point, as you said, is Texas A and M was like, we'll pay a gazillion dollars for a coach because we want to win. So if the if the school and the program if they had the commitment, they had the boosters lined up to pay, then that'll make happen. But if Arizona got the boosters lined up, if Oregon got the boosters lined up, if Wisconsin got the boosters lined up, yeah, it would be a little harder because he is getting great Texas guys. But again, it's the top tier coaches matter so much, and he was mad. Jimbo was mad on Wednesday. And one of the things I like about this podcast, it again, it is playoff centric. I like college football, but I mostly like the football. And I don't like to break my brain thinking about societal ramifications sometimes when I just want to watch football. I'm all, I'm all, societal ramifications are fine. I get it. Big picture matters. Sports fit into American culture and our life. I get it. I get it. But like we don't spend a ton of time on here talking about NIL because when I watch the NFL, I don't care what their endorsement deals are. I get it. Tom's Tom Brady's in a subway ad and Trevor Lawrence is in the same ad and Steph Curry's in the same subway ad and Charles Barkley's in the same subway ad. I have no idea why they get 19 different stars for one subway ad. It's just a mediocre sub, dude. You're blowing money. Like, I mean, just like reduce the price of the meat 75 cents. Why do you need nine different athletes in the same ad? But I don't like, I don't care. So I don't, I don't care about what NIL deals college players get. Good luck. You should have the right to do it. Awesome. I'm glad it happened, but I don't care. I care when it changes the football. And that's been my attitude the whole time. There was like a thing and there's a message board post that a site wrote the message board poster was named Sliced Bread. Sliced Bread said that at Texas A&M had this fund, 
multi-million dollar fund. I think it was 20 or $30 million allegedly of NIL, of name, image, and likeness, where the boosters were lined up and they were using the NIL fund to entice recruits to go there. And listen, this is all now you're allowed to do this kind of thing. There are some regulations, but like it's above board. And people did run with that to some degree. And Jimbo went off on that on Wednesday. And he said, it's insulting. The hypocrisy is a joke as he talked about other people talking about what sliced bread said. He said, like, Texas A&M is a great place. The idea that the only reason these kids want to come here for NIL is ridiculous. That was long-winded, but here's the point. Whenever somebody starts recruiting well, when they hadn't recruited as well before, this is where you go. It's like, oh, yeah, I'd be paying guys. Now, the issue now is that you can, quote, pay guys, and it's okay by the rules if you do it the right way with NIL. Is that where our heads have to go here? And I get why Jimbo's mad because in recruiting, Shahan, I've covered it a long time. You've covered it a long time. When somebody else succeeds in recruiting, then you assume that they're they're cutting corners or breaking rules. When you succeed in recruiting, ah, oh, we did it the right way. What a miracle. We compete with everybody by doing it the right way, but everybody else does it the wrong way. That's how every coach thinks. So a lot of it is like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to say, like, did you recruit well enough or not? And if you don't, you're going to lose your job. I don't know who's cheating. I don't know who's not. But what do we think of Jimbo getting his back up today about a class that has, like, 16 top 100 guys, and people are making jokes about sliced bread saying they have a fun for him? Here's one thing about it, right, is that not every form of paying recruits is just NIL because NIL isn't supposed to be able to be used for inducements. So, like... When we're talking about NIL, we're talking about like contracts that are passed through the school's compliance department. I, I think the implication is more just, just straight up cheating, right? Like I, I think that that's more what we're talking about here. And the reality is when you're talking about some of those top kids, like that's part of it, right? I mean, that's just ultimately part of it. I think it's less of a part of it than maybe people want to believe, but uh I mean, Yes, I do think that there probably was some level of money that changed hands for Texas A&M. I also think that there's some level of money that changed hands for Georgia's awesome class and for Alabama's awesome class and for Ohio State's awesome class. Like, I think that there's some of this that's just business done. So the idea that like Texas A&M just money whipped everybody because they didn't think about paying everybody else the first time. Like, no, that's not realistic. And the other thing that I want to I want to say about that, too, about both NIL and even under the table inducements, whatever is that there's a reason that even though Texas A&M had all this money before, that kids weren't going there. They're going there now because they think that they're going to get put into the NFL and have a chance to be all SEC. That's why they're going there now, you know? And so this idea that that the only reason that that kids make decisions is for a short-term boost of money, like, no, ultimately, they go, they're going to go to the place where it makes the most sense for them to become first-round NFL draft picks because that's where you make a lot more money than any school is going to even hypothetically pay you. So, yes, is is both NIL, which NIL opportunities is a part of that, slash getting money under the table. Does that play a role? Sure. But is that even the top five reasons that I think that Texas A&M put together the top recruiting class in the country? No, I don't think so. I will say, and, and again, a lot of what – Jimbo said, like, he, he was right. There was somebody in the Notre Dame at, at University Administration. It was like a VP of communications, yeah. Who retweeted, like, the sliced bread screenshot and was like, hmm, very interesting. And it's like, that is insane. 
I tried to look up like what happened to that Notre Dame person. That is so irresponsible. Like you're when you when you're when your Twitter account says that you work in Notre Dame's administration, you can't cite sliced bread. That's one of the rules. And and the thing is, right, like it was it wasn't even just a retweet. He actually like posted the link like and and tweeted it out. Now, he probably just like clicked the Twitter button and had no idea what he was doing because he's like a slightly older man. But like you can't be doing that. You can't be on brobible.com just tweeting out links. You're you're a VP of communicate. You're you're a VP specifically of communication at Notre Dame and you don't know how your Twitter account works. He later deleted it, which is why you probably couldn't find it, but uh no, that that's that guy, right? And so it's it's the craziest thing. And like you said, I mean, whenever you have somebody who's like a little new money, it, it is natural, right? To, to kind of go and, and start questioning it and be like, well, how are you guys doing this? Why would you be able to do this? But like, I mean, like you said, Jimbo Fisher is a coach that's won a national championship and specifically won a national championship in recent memory, right? This isn't Mac Brown even, who also has, by the way, a top 10 class. Uh, you know, it's, it's Nick Saban, it's Kirby Smart. And so, you know, there's a lot of really good reasons also why People are picking Texas A&M. They're going to have a chance to have multiple first-round picks potentially in this upcoming draft. They're going to have like 10 kids drafted in the 2022 NFL draft. There's a lot of very good reasons that have everything to do with football that kids are considering Texas A&M. Will it turn into competing for a national championship? I mean, it better because that's the point. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's just... I do, I do understand Jimbo Fisher's frustration with this idea that that's the only reason that somebody would choose Texas A&M is because they're getting funneled money. I do think it might be like the, the line might be if NIL didn't exist, would Texas A&M have an excellent recruiting class this cycle? Yes. If NIL didn't exist, would Texas A&M have the greatest recruiting class of all time? Maybe not. I, to, to me, the answer is yes, because again, this isn't NIL. This isn't this isn't stuff being cleared through the compliance department. No, no, no. But but listen. But I think some of it is because there there are things. The schools can help find some deals for players, and I do think. I mean, what what people are arguing is not that necessarily there is a fund where they're just handing out money to players, right? But there is a thing like this fund exists, and man, if you come here, boy, oh boy, the boosters are lined up to help create NIL deals for anybody who plays well for Texas A&M. And that maybe it's not like the money right now, but it's like the promise of the money because they have a fun- – I mean, schools are – Ohio State just do this, just created a, par- a department in their athletic department to help facilitate some of this stuff. And the comparison that I had made, and I think I made it another podcast, not this one, is like in politics you have the campaign and then you have the super PACs. Well, the rules say that the campaign and the super PACs aren't supposed to talk to each other, right? But guess what? The super PACs spend millions of dollars supporting particular candidates. And my, oh, my, isn't interesting how their messages are the same. So what do you think happens? So they have a rule. Everybody fudges the rule. That's how I'm viewing this. Like the schools aren't supposed to say, hey, we'll give you a million dollars if you come here. Because that's what the NIL, separate NIL stuff does. But the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, and like it's basically allowed now. So I I don't think that this is about like Texas A and M writing having boosters write just like million dollar checks right now. It is through this new thing that's legal. 
Well, we, we can go 50 more minutes on campaign finance reform, but I think that this is less, uh, I think this is less super PACs and it's more like if Texas A&M couldn't do that, then they just bundle, for example, right? And, and you know, bundling is like a process where, where people are like sort of combine, uh, donations and stuff and attribute it to different people. Like that's more what's happening. It's direct impact from these people. I think that's more that we're talking about than stuff that's being created on the side because you know, Texas A&M, in terms of brand, in terms of like marketability, that's not one of the bigger brands in terms of marketability. You're not creating real value in the same sort of way that you are if you go to Alabama or Ohio State. But it's not real companies. It's just boosters who want to give money for no reason through NIL. It's not like companies. But so, for example, if NIL doesn't exist, do you think that that stops them from funneling money to these players? I think I think it makes it easier if you were anybody who was like apprehensive about like, I don't know if I should be doing this. I don't think this is allowed. It's like, no, it's allowed. Just give us money and we'll, we'll, you know, pay them to do whatever. We'll pay them to do an autograph signing. Hey, come do an autograph signing, you know, at a food bank and we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars to do it. And it's like a thing. It's like a, it's an agreement, but I, I do think it's just like anything. I always say like me, I could have been going to my bookie. Right. But I would be worried that the bookie would break my knees. So I don't sports bet. But when Ohio <laughs> makes it legal and you have it on your phone and it's like, well, I guess I might put I might put two dollars on the Celtics Oklahoma City game tonight. Right. I mean, I could have done it before, but I was a little nervous about it. I do think there are people who want their team to win who were like, well, I guess I could have been handing out money in paper bags but i was a little nervous about that but now that this foundation is set up for nil i'm here show me where to give i i just think that that's that perspective is much more like what's like the dug of programs is more like you know smu right smu is like okay well we're in dallas so like we can make it easy to facilitate things and create real value whereas like the guy who's betting you know two hundred thousand dollars on games was already doing it and Texas A&M is way more that program than he is the Doug of betting. Please don't tell SMU that you called them the Doug of something. It would be such well, an insult hey, to them. They'll just be thrilled the idea that I implied that uh, that I didn't make a joke about them having paid players in the past. <laughs> That's true. They get nervous about that topic whenever it's brushed. All right. So one way <laughs> or the other, Texas A&M did this. And you know what? At some point, like if this sport can't police itself – like I don't know, I don't know what people are supposed to do, right? I guess if there's proof, it's whatever. But like I have reached the point with some of this where, I mean, it's out of control. The gov the governing body basically has ceased to exist, other than to have go to you know go to the office in Indianapolis and everybody can go to lunch together. I, I have no idea what they do there. The NCAA may as well just shut itself down. You don't get the checks then. No, that's all they do. They're just a payment processing place. <laughs> So why would they shut themselves down? But why do they need Mark Emmert to be in charge of like signing the paychecks? He doesn't do anything. He doesn't govern anything. Because his check's clear. <laughs> it is the NCAA. What the NCAA has, does best is like they like line the fields for the softball championship. Like they they do logistics. Maybe the baseball fields. I don't know how they're doing with the softball fields. Well, that's true. They wouldn't. They're like, sorry, softball. We didn't have any extra lime. You're going to have to guess where the base paths are. We gave it all to the men. No, but all they do, they don't, they don't govern. They just facilitate. They don't, they don't like exercise any power for the good of the sport. So the NCAA sucks, but 
So if this is what it is, I mean, they've screwed this up. I'm not arguing that players shouldn't be able to make money, but that this is how they came to this. And it's just like, ah, because again, people don't give millionaire NFL players money just because they think they're cool. Right. But like in college, people are going to do that. It's not, it's not like the value of what they give your company. It's like, I just want to give them money because I want my team to win. So anyway, Texas A&M did it. And like, it's remarkable. I think is it 16 or 17 top 100 guys in this class, Shahan? Like it is, it is across the board. Um, my numbers, I think I was looking at 247 Sports Composite. Um, I have so much stuff, I lost some of it. But I think I think it was like Texas A&M had 16 top 100 guys, Bama had 15, and Georgia had 11. And those guys are just playing on a, on a different level. And it's they're from everywhere. They're at every position. It is it is a complete roster that they have built here. And the fact that it's happening at Texas A&M, however it happened is unexpected, and you have to acknowledge that. Yeah, and and the last thing I want to say on that, I do think that it is not a coincidence that Texas A&M's recruiting rise has also come at the same time that they've been one of the most stable programs in the SEC. Because you look at that top three, it's Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Jimbo Fisher. Nick Saban signed through 2029. Jimbo Fisher signed through 30, 2031, uh, basically 3031. Uh, and, and Kirby Smart's about to probably sign the, the biggest contract in the history of sports, probably because he just won a national championship at Georgia. So those are three guys who have been there and they're going to be guys who are going to be there. You know, when you are a coach and you are able to tell players coming in, I am going to be your head coach for the duration of your college career. That's a big deal. And you look at uh, the teams even in the top 10, for example, uh, you know, these are coaches that have been around a while who have sort of deep ties with their program and who you know are going to be there for a long time. So I, I don't think that you can separate that part of it as well. All right, quick break. We'll come back and talk about the other teams that overachieved. Before we get to the underachievers, man, I'm excited to start ripping people. We got to do that on the College Football Survivor Show. In case you missed the last College Football Survivor Show. True freshman in 2022, again, that we think can impact the playoff race. It starts at Penn State, and it starts with quarterback Drew Aller. I mean, obviously, it's a lot to ask a kid to come in even as a five-star prospect and immediately contribute. We compared it a couple weeks ago to kind of Kelly Bryant at Clemson, where he starts, and then by the end of the year, Trevor Lawrence is the starting quarterback. I could see something like that happening. He is also at the top of my list, but I have him paired. They also have the number one running back in this class, Penn State does, and Nicholas Singleton, who was also enrolled early. Those two guys might get on the field right away and just be the leaders of their offense for the next three years. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for exclusive College Survivor Show bonus episodes. Doug and Shahan, back on the Tuesday show, we talked about some of the individual players in this 2022 recruiting class that could immediately impact the playoff race. Brock Bowers at Georgia as a freshman tight end did it last year. Dallas Turner as an Alabama linebacker. Junior Colson at Michigan. Caleb Williams at Oklahoma. Trevor Henderson at Ohio State. We know it's going to happen. Who are some of the guys that could do it immediately in the fall? That's the Tuesday podcast only for Apple Podcast listeners. You got to pay $2.99 a month, but you get every Tuesday show then. So most of the time, that's four shows. I think it'll be three shows this month or last month because we gave ourselves a little break. But anyway, it's pretty good value. So go find that. That was talking more about players. This is more about programs. But one of the players that you brought up on that show, Shahan, was Zach Rice, the tackle, the tackle from North Carolina. And North Carolina is a second on my list here. 
for overachieving teams. Did you also have the Tar Heels on your list? Yeah, they're they're number two on my list as well. I'm gonna have to try to to mess with my number three to try to make sure that we don't overlap. I guess my my three is weird, so don't worry, you won't overlap with my okay. weirdness. But uh, you have to just acknowledge again what Mac Brown has done. He's been there for three seasons now. The three seasons before he got there, North Carolina 29th, 20th, and 30th in the nation. The three seasons since he's been there, 14th, 14th, 10th, a top 10 class. For North Carolina, and they did it a little different in this class. I found this fascinating. Virginia has great football players. That DMV area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, especially great talent there. And that is always interesting, Shahan, because it's a place where college football sort of comes together a little bit because Big Ten teams, Penn State historically, has made a lot of bones in that area. Ohio State goes in there a lot and tries to – Clemson has had some success in there. And then, of course, you have the in-state schools, Virginia Tech especially, but Virginia. Some of the SEC schools will come up there. It's right in between. It's kind of south. It's kind of north, which means it can be open for business for basically anybody, any major program on the eastern side of the country. This class, Shahan, North Carolina got – the number one, number three, number four, number six, and number nine players from the state of Virginia. That is not necessarily what they've been doing. They didn't have a, they had one, I think, top 100 or one top 10 Virginia player last year's class. Right when Mac Brown got here, his first class two years ago, Tony Grimes was the number one player in Virginia in that class. He picked North Carolina. That was a big deal then. If, for, if North Carolina is going to become, especially in a world where Virginia Tech fired its coach, some instability there. If North Carolina can become the destination school and like the new hometown program for the state of Virginia, in addition to what else North Carolina is, is doing, that's sustainable. That's a way to say, because like, well, you can't just recruit North Carolina kids and have a top 10 class. I was fascinated that, by that idea, and that has impacts on Penn State and Ohio State and Clemson and Virginia Tech if Carolina's taking those guys and they're not going to those schools. I feel like you've just been making a giant case for why I should have put Virginia Tech on my underachiever list because holy crap, holy crap, Virginia Tech, what are we doing here? What's going on? I know that Virginia Tech historically has been like a very sort of uh not smoke and mirrors program, but you know, they're very much like a, we're, we're going to find guys, we're going to make them tough and we're going to punch you in the mouth. I mean, you could just recruit the best players in Virginia and probably be a whole lot better off. But anyway, no, I, I think that North Carolina has to be on this list. This was their first top 10 class, but they've had now three top 15 classes in a row. They signed a combined four or five stars over the last three classes at North Carolina, a school that's way more interested in signing four basketball five stars than football five stars. And they've done it, uh, you know, they've really done it in a very sort of a gr- grassroots way. You know, they've done a great job of just hitting the pavement you know they've done a great job of hiring local they've done a great job of having a system that's fun to play in and and i think that mac brown has done a tremendous job you know mac brown obviously from his time at texas i think has has a reputation of being a great recruiter but like i think that this really shows that he gets the basics of it right that he understands how to recruit not just at a school like texas where you can show up but you know i think also just in terms of the relationships that you have to build when you're at a school like north carolina so just done a tremendous job i think and the other thing too is that you know we had this conversation a little bit uh last year before the year about oregon and i think that uh you know with with north carolina they've got such a good group of defensive playmakers coming in 
at some point it's going to hit, right? At some point, I think that they're going to turn a corner. I don't know if it's going to be 2022, but I think it's coming just because of the amount of talent that they brought in. They've actually recruited in some ways better on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive side of the ball, even though they've been better on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of reasons to be excited about what North Carolina is, especially if Clemson's not going to necessarily be supercharged Clemson like they have been. And again, this is another instance of the coach's reputation following the coach. And this happens like this happens in journalism all the time. It's like, hey, a place hires somebody and as kind of like a, a nobody, right? And they help develop that writer or that broadcaster or whatever. And then that person builds up and then they're so good, a bigger place just plucks them. And it's like that place didn't do anything to develop that person, but they pluck them away and the reputation comes with them. It's like how the whole world works. But again, Lincoln Riley is a nobody when Oklahoma hires him. He becomes Lincoln Riley there and USC plucks the fully formed Lincoln Riley. The North Carolina thing is fascinating because Mac Brown didn't recruit like this the first time in North Carolina. He was good. He was so good he got the Texas job. Then he went to Texas. One of the reasons he wound up having to leave Texas is because the recruiting fell off at Texas. So then he goes and does TV. Everybody loves him. He's famous from Texas. He wins a national title. And then he goes back to North Carolina, and he's simultaneously old, beloved Mac, just like he was before. We love this guy. But now he brings the Texas cachet with him. So now he's able to recruit a top 15 or top 10 class because he's Texas Mac. And guess what? Texas can't get out of its own way. So it's, again, this idea, It's this is why it's hard. Again, I don't like talking about coaches' salaries on this show, but it's crazy. Of course it's crazy. It's insane societal stuff. Who should make more teachers or college football coaches? We all get it, right? But the right coach, like you can't put a price on it because nobody else could do it in North Carolina what Mac Brown is doing because you're paying for some of that Texasness. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's another prime example of a, of a guy getting it done like that. So credit to Mac Brown. And, and again, this, they beat Clemson this year in the ACC. Oh, North Carolina had a higher ranked class than Clemson. That matters. I can imagine if, if and when somebody has a higher ranked recruiting class than Ohio State in the Big Ten, people are going to go crazy. So like that idea, that mattered. I thought that was a big deal that North Carolina finished like ranked uh, slightly higher. Who's your third team of overachievers? Yeah, it was less based on this year and it was more based on the last couple of years. But Oregon is is really recruiting above its weight as of late. Uh, obviously, Mario Cristobal, when he left the job, mentioned, hey, look, you know, we've done a great job of recruiting. We've got three arguably top 10 classes, including the number six class in the country this past year. We're going to have maybe the number one pick in the NFL draft with Kayvon Thibodeau. I, I think that, you know, we were waiting kind of for that moment that the defense caught up to the offense and it came. I mean, that happened last year. And now, actually, I think you look at that 2021 class, there's a lot of reasons for me to be excited about what they're going to be on offense. You know, Ty Thompson at quarterback, I think that at some point he has a chance to beat out Bo Nix. Uh, and I still think it's in the cards potentially that uh, that Dan Lanning, obviously the former defensive coordinator at Georgia, that, that he takes a look at JT Daniels. I'd be curious to see whether JT Daniels might be somebody who comes along too to Oregon. But they also had some great uh, young players at receiver, Dante Thornton, Troy Franklin. And then this class this year, I mean, it's a very transfer-heavy class because it's just a transitional class, of course. But, you know, you still get 14 players. You're still top 30 in the country despite uh, having such a, a small class. You know, they have some guys in this class that I think have a chance to be difference makers. And the reality is when USC's not rolling, 
I mean, there really isn't a program in the Pac-12 that's going to be recruiting even close to that elite level, close to that top 10 level. Oregon's done it consistently over the past couple of years. And now I'm curious because one thing that I kind of criticized Oregon about in the past was that I felt like they were a very talented team and I felt like the coaching was a little inconsistent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. I'm curious now with Dan Lanning coming in, who's more of a schematic guy on the defensive side of the ball, does he kind of put a little bit more focus on schematic and a little less focus on just player acquisition? And and can maybe this team be a little bit more than they were? Everybody can't recruit great at the same time. Just like everybody can't go 12 and 0. I am fascinated to see how the rise of USC affects Oregon because Oregon has had success going to recruit Southern California while USC was in a hole. So this is going to be one of those things. Sometimes it's like, okay, so USC, Lincoln Riley is going to go in there and he's going to raise the recruiting level. But if he recruits national a lot, of course he's going to take the best LA kids. But if he doesn't take all the best Southern California kids, because he's also taken some Texas kids and some Florida kids and some wherever kids, New Jersey kids, Ohio kids, that's going to leave an opening for Oregon to continue to recruit Southern California. If Lincoln Riley just says, we're going to start off by taking the 12 best kids in Southern California every year, Oregon's going to have to figure something out because Kayvon Thibodeau is a Southern California kid, right? That, that's a guy that Lincoln Riley's going to not let out of Southern California. So I'll, I'm curious where Dan Landing, he flipped the kid who had been committed to Georgia as a running back. Uh, on Wednesday, that was one of the things Oregon did. I'll be curious to see their recruiting strategy if USC manages to shut down the LA area pretty well. And I am curious too, because one thing is, I think that uh, that's something that can happen when you have two sort of opposite programs like that, is that when they kind of have opposite identities, I think that can be a positive. So, for example, USC is going to be an offense-first program because they have Lincoln Riley. Oregon has a chance to be that defensive program, right? I mean, Dan Lanning obviously coordinated arguably the best defense in college football history at Georgia. You know, there isn't a team that's making claim to these defensive players in the state of California. Now, Damani Jackson, the great cornerback, obviously from uh, from Los Angeles, he ends up going to USC, and they're going to get some of these kids because it's USC and it's fun and it's new. And the other thing too is that I do think that they're going to have a chance to be better defensively at USC, just culturally, than they were at Oklahoma. But uh, you know, I, I think that being able to sell Kayvon Thibodeau on the idea that this is a defense program, you will be the star here. It's not going to be Caleb Williams. I think that that is a a message that can sell. And the other thing too, is that, I mean, even looking at this year's class and it's going to change a little bit with the, with Lincoln Riley coming in. I mean, there was no real plurality in the top 20 kids. I mean, if there was a program that really took advantage of California this year, it was Arizona. You know, they got the number four player in the class. They got the number 14 player in the class. They got the number 17 player from the state of California. Like, can Oregon beat out Arizona? I think so, <laughs> you know? And so I, I think that there's still a lot of players available, even if uh, certainly I, I think that we expect USC to, to nab six of the top 12 players in the state every given year. But I think that Oregon can get three of those top 12 players. And the other thing too is that I like that they didn't kind of cower back after losing two SEC tied coaches to the Southeast, because it would have been very easy to just be like, Oh man, we lost two guys who wanted to go home and now we're going to just hire some guy from Oregon. And I think that would have been a mistake. Instead, they kept with an SEC young coach, uh, somebody who has ties in that region. So I think that they're still going to recruit nationally. And I think the reality is having access to California is great, but 
you are better off as a program when you're able to pick from the entire country instead of just focusing in so much on one state. There's a USC point that we'll make again a little bit later that I want, I want to talk about, but I'm going to finish my overachievers and I'm going to give my third spot to the Midwest because the South owns college football. It's all anybody talks about. We know that. So I do think acknowledging that according to the 247 composite recruiting rankings, Ohio State had the number four class, Penn State had the number six class, Notre Dame had the number seven class, and Michigan had the number nine class, right? They have to go out and get some national kids to be able to do that. They have to do that if they want to be competitive, if they want to have a chance to beat Texas A&M and Alabama and Georgia and USC and Oklahoma. And if Texas ever gets to get together and Florida or Miami ever gets together, they have to do that. But they did. And, and Ohio State has been up here a lot, but for Penn State, and we talked a lot about Penn State on the Tuesday show, for Penn State to have the number six class in the country after some not, a not great recruiting cycle for James Franklin not so long ago, that's a big deal. For Notre Dame, Notre Dame loses Brian Kelly. They lost some guys as a result of that. Marcus Freeman gets in there. Number seven recruiting class, that's a big deal. Jim Harbaugh might not be Michigan's coach very much longer, might not be Michigan's coach by the time you hear this podcast. But anytime, and they've recruited at a pretty high level. They've had top 10 classes pretty consistently. I just think that's worth acknowledging because in a world where sometimes it feels like everybody thinks the only place where you can win a national title is in the SEC, these teams are at least still trying, and they have to go recruit nationally to do it. They have to lock down the Midwest kids to do it. But four of the top nine from the Midwest is something. You know, I, I really want to give a shout out to Penn State, actually, because I think that it's easy to lose track of uh, of James Franklin because – you know, I mean, they haven't had the most consistent of results. They did win the SEC. Uh, sorry, they did win the Big Ten, which I think is very impressive. But like, there's no guarantee that after everything that happened at Penn State, that this was going to be a premier program, much less from a recruiting perspective. I think that James Franklin is the reason that people still view them as that. Because, you know, Bill O'Brien, his classes were outside of the top 20 whenever he was there, uh, which is reasonable. I mean, obviously, he went through a lot during his time there. I think that James Franklin really did transform, and really more than transform, I think that he helped maintain the image of Penn State as one of these borderline blue blood programs. And you know, this is the thing that's so exciting to me about them getting Drew Aller. And we talked about Drew Aller on uh, on yesterday's podcast. But, you know, I, I think that they just need that team that gets over the edge. They've had that team that won the Big Ten. They haven't had that team that's been able to really beat Ohio State, beat Michigan, and make the college football playoff. I think that they're a team that could benefit more than maybe any other just reputationally if they finally got there. Because... The level of consistency in terms of player acquisition and in terms of personnel and in terms of roster that, that James Franklin has been, I, I don't think they get enough credit for doing that. Because again, I don't think that there's any guarantee that with any other coach that they'd be here. I'm not sure there's a huge difference. I think there's some, but not a huge difference between Penn State and Nebraska in terms of programs that at a certain time in college football led by a legendary coach we're as good as anybody, but they don't have to be good. Now, Penn State's got a little more of a recruiting base. You got New Jersey right there, Pennsylvania. There's more there than Nebraska has, but, but there's a, it's a close enough comparison that you can't take Penn State can't take its success for granted anymore in this reality, in, in this world where the South runs things, where Ohio State's 
in a bigger city and Penn state's kind of out in the country. And I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. There's not as many good players in Ohio and Pennsylvania as there used to be. So I do think that is worth acknowledging. All right, let's talk about underachievers. And I'm going to throw a quick one out here. It is my number three. And I just want to talk about it because it's not about this year, but it's acknowledging what's going to change, which is USC. And that USC wound up with a a highly ranked class by average star rating. It's in the top 10. I think it's sixth by average star rating. Because they only have eight guys, I think, right? They only have eight guys, but four of them are top 100 kids. So their average star rating was actually fifth in the country. It's Bama one, Texas A&M two, Ohio State three, Georgia four by average star rating, which is sometimes when we do the overall recruiting rankings, people know it's like the more players you have, the higher your ranking is because it's like a total points kind of thing. But then you divide it and you say, what's the average ranking of the player? You get there's Ohio, USC had the 65th overall recruiting class, but by average rating, they were fifth. But it's acknowledging again how bad it's been. And so as it's changing, USC this year had four top 100 players out of the eight guys they recruited. Last year, they had five top 100 players out of the 22 guys they recruited. But really, it's the years before that. 2020, they only had 12 people in their class, one top 100 recruit. 2019, 24 guys in the class, two top 100 recruits. So in 19 and 20, they had three total top 100 recruits out of the 36 players they recruited. This year alone, Lincoln Riley, last minute, got four out of eight. That's why Clay Helton doesn't have a job anymore. They actually did better last year, but it was too late. And we were talking, you know, this is how it works. Devin Brown, who's one of the top five quarterbacks in the country, who had been committed to USC, decommitted after the coaching changes, committed to Ohio State. I was at the Ohio State interviews today. They were talk- talking to early and He's talking a lot to Devin Brown. Like he loved Graham Harrell, who was the offensive coordinator for Clay Helton at USC. And like he kind of wanted to stay. It's almost like, I mean, Clay Helton was maybe going to get his quarterback. And Jackson Dart was there, right? People like Jackson Dart. He just transferred to Ole Miss because Caleb Williams is going to USC. But just like the depth of talent is so lacking from that dip. It's, it's almost amazing Clay Helton lasted as long as he did. And as USC starts to turn it around, it's a reminder about where they are right now. This roster is not fully functional yet. And a reminder of, of how stark the difference is going to be. Because I think, don't, do you think that Lincoln Riley, we should expect top five classes from now on from him? Yeah, I mean, top 10 for sure. I think that, uh, you know, I think it'll take some time probably to get to top five. But I mean, they should be, they should have better class in Oregon pretty quick, right? I mean, and Oregon's had some really good classes. And and the other thing too is that they're going to have a chance with transfers because they do bring in the number one transfer class in the country with 13 kids, including Caleb Williams, by the way. Uh, they're going to have a chance to, I think, be good r- right away. So I do think that, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say they should be at least competing for top five classes within the next year or two. Let's do quick on Caleb Williams because that happened after we were done with the with our last podcast. It's expected – but does that – I think we were hedging a little bit on could USC – I mean, I don't think they're like a playoff contender right away. But now that Caleb Williams is there for sure, do they need to be viewed as a dark horse playoff contender in 2022? If we mean dark horse to mean dark horse, then sure. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of things have to go right. The thing that works well for them is that they don't have to play the tougher teams in the Pac-12 until the second half of their schedule, so they're going to have a minute to get things together. I, I still don't think they're quite ready as yet. They lost a lot of players on the defensive side of the ball, and it's also just going to take time, I think, on that side of the ball. But, um, you know, I, I think Tom Fornelli, my colleague over at CBS Sports, put out a poll, and he asked, you know, where do you see this team being? Do you see it being a team that 
wins the Pac-12, wins the South, makes the playoff, or just a team that's a bowl team. And I ended up answering bowl team, but I think that that's a little misleading because I think that I think that Utah is probably going to have a chance to beat them in the South, but they could be a 10-2 team. I mean, they could be really, really good. They could be a top 15 team. And I think that they could do that right away. I think that's a reasonable expectation of them to expect nine and three, 10 and two and competing for the top 15. I, I think that's a reasonable expectation for year one. All right. So me obviously putting USC on this list is just a, a, an acknowledgement of the past that's no longer there. Who's one of your underachievers? Yeah. I mean, actually, I, I almost didn't know exactly who to put. I mean, I, I think just the the bottom half of the Pac-12 at large. I mean, you look at the bottom half of this league, I know that some of it has to do with heavy transfer classes, but that's not a huge excuse to me. Other than USC, where you're kind of bringing in a first-year head coach, I, I mean, Washington, only nine kids in their class. Arizona State, only nine kids in their class. Those are the bottom two classes in the Pac-12. And then you even look at uh, UCLA, 11 commits right now. I mean, Chip Kelly's in, heading into year five, I think. I mean... These are classes that should not be at that level. They just shouldn't. And, you know, we've talked so much about the issues that these schools have had with talent acquisition in the Pac-12. Uh, and George Klievkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, has been upfront about it, too. But, you know, it's it's not getting a whole lot better across the conference. And especially with these two teams, especially Washington and Arizona State. And Arizona State, I mean, they've got all the stuff flying around with them right now from the NCAA. That's going to be a big part of it. But, you know, Washington, I think, is also very disappointing to me just in terms of how little they've put together. Uh, and, you know, I think that, that the Pac-12 really needs Washington to be a good team. They did add uh, six transfers, but to still only have, uh, you, you know, nine or ten kids and be – outside of the top 90 in the country in terms of recruiting rankings. I, I mean, that's just not good enough. It's interesting. Klievkov is is so out there, right? And I don't mean like out there like crazy, like he's very front-facing for a commissioner. I'm curious, like, he seems very interested in making the Pac-12 better at football and sort of challenging the schools in the conference, trying to help the schools in the conference. I'm I'm fascinated by, like, how much can a commissioner do? Can he? Because it felt like the the Pac-12 was a little rudderless there for a while, right? In terms of now, he can do a lot with TV deals and getting more money, which means bigger facilities, which means higher paid coaches, and the money in college football is nuts. But you 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 should be able to turn money into wins. So there's some formula there. Do you think he can help get this going, or is it like, listen, man, he's just a guy in an office? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix of both. I. I... Look, I, I don't know, obviously, and none of us know what sort of role George Klyovkov had in the conversations even to uh, with USC to, to kind of get their act together and get Lincoln Riley there. But I, I imagine that he was at least part of the conversation with administrators, right? And I think that even when you look at a situation like Oregon or even when you look at a situation like Washington, you know, it seems like he's been very present. And the thing that I appreciate about him is that he is not somebody who comes from the college football world. And I think it shows he's not buttoned up. He's not over here lying to the world, pretending that he doesn't care about things that he clearly has to care about. And I think that just that sort of focus on the product is going to be big for them because, you know, you look at Larry Scott before him. I mean, Larry Scott was so focused on the financials, right? He was so focused on the brand and the, you know, the studio and the, the $5 million a year rent, you know, space and stuff like that. Right. Whereas I think that George Klievkov has really turned his eye to the product and said, this is what we need to fix first and foremost before anything else. And I do think that uh, just having that kind of leadership, even seep down to athletic directors, to university presidents, and even to the coaches uh, that, that take part on the field. I think that that can matter. 
All right, we'll come back with our last couple underachievers in recruiting next on the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Doug Maurice back with Shahan Jaharaja of CBS Sports. Him, not me. We never want to burden CBS Sports with that. They would, they would, they would never hire me. Um, this is, uh, I'm putting an asterisk on this, and I understand that it's not exactly fair, and I don't exactly mean it. And I'm just, we're keeping an eye on it. And it's Clemson. Clemson signed eight guys on Wednesday. They only signed 12 guys in the early signing period. They signed eight more on Wednesday. There weren't a lot of schools that were getting that much work done on the late signing period. Only three of those eight guys were ranked even in the top 1,000 of recruits. Um, they signed a linebacker, TJ Dudley, who was 239. They signed a defensive lineman, Caden Story, who was 204. They sent a guy who was 781. They find like five other guys like who don't have ratings, which is unusual. And Clemson has won without the best recruiting classes in the country. They finished 11th in the overall 247 composite ratings this year. You go back 2014, they were number 16. 2015, they were number nine. 2016, they were number 11. Then they were number 16. 2018, they were number seven. 2019, they were number 10. Then the last two years, they jumped. 2020, they were number three. 2021, they were number five. And they really started recruiting off of their on-field success. So this is a program that has competed basically step-for-step with Alabama in the playoff era without recruiting like Alabama. So incredible credit to Dabo Sweeney and his staff. But in a world where Brent Venables left, when Brent Venables left, four defensive players decommitted, including... Jihad Campbell, who I mentioned is one of the guys who can make an impact right away at Alabama, he was committed to Clemson before Brent Venables decided to leave. They lost the other guys they they lost went to Georgia, Michigan, and one signed with Venables at Oklahoma. So that was four big losses, and we get it. And that happens all the time. You develop a relationship with coaches and then you leave. I'm not saying they'll never recruit a great defensive player again. But they were 11th. UNC finished a spot ahead of them. They had five-star running backs in each of their last two classes. Will Shipley was really good last year until he got hurt. I'm not saying they're short at running back. They wound up taking a running back really late on Wednesday whose dad played at Clemson, whose other offers were Air Force, Marshall, and Central Florida. So I'm just saying, like, that's not indicative of a big-picture thing. I get that. I remember when Jim Trestle at Ohio State gave a late scholarship to Archie Griffin's son. And it was like, what is happening here? This kid's barely a two-star. And it's like, listen, man, sometimes it's okay. You're a winner. You have great players. You have a scholarship to spare. I get it. I'm not saying anything against anybody. I'm just curious, Shahan, and I think we're all watching. When you lose two coordinators like that, when you have for what is Clemson a down year with a three-loss year, the last two years you had top five classes, now you're 11th. We talked about Cade Klubnik, one of the best quarterbacks in the country. They got him in this class. I'm just curious. So I don't really mean it on the underachieving list, but I wanted to talk about him. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I understand where you're coming from. I will say uh, their average recruit rating was even driven down a little bit by having a kicker and a punter, right? And they still finished over 0.9. I mean, the, if you ta- actually take out the kicker and the punter from their average recruit ratings, their classes are ahead of Michigan and Texas. So I'm not super concerned about this class. Now, I am certainly watching. I, I am certainly keeping an eye on things because, you know, the reality is they're going to have a new 
offensive coordinator who's going to have to recruit all these number one overall quarterbacks now that uh, now they've lost both their coordinators they're going to have to find uh, a new guy to recruit defensive linemen now that both Todd Bates and uh, Brent Venables are off to Oklahoma like there's a lot of reasons to to have questions about this program. I would not say that this class is especially a warning sign for me, but it is something that I'm watching. I, I mean, it is definitely something that I'm keeping an eye on. And, uh, you know, the other thing, too, with Clemson is that they've usually done such a good job of identifying and kind of like really pinpointing exactly what they need it felt like they had some misses in this class that that is the one thing that i will say it felt like they identified uh some targets especially at running back i mean they they did have a really good running back class this this past year but they did need a few more bodies in that room and they didn't find them so i i do think that there's a couple of reasons for concern but i'm not quite there especially because over the last couple of years you know if we're looking back a couple of classes too they've still recruited so well the last thing I'll say is again on this coaching reputation thing we're talking about. We talk about with head coaches that you can take it with you. They lost four big time defensive recruits the minute Brent Venables walked out the door. Again, that's not atypical, but I'm curious how much of the defensive reputation he took with him and will top 100 defensive players still really want to go to Clemson or are they really going to want to go play for Brent Venables at Oklahoma? And I'm, I'm curious how that developed. They seem to love the guys that they were grooming. They hired from within, you know, I'm not questioning those guys, but reputations matter. And I'm curious to see how that works out. Who's another underachiever for you. There's a lot happening at this program. So I don't want to say that it's just recruiting underachieving, but recruiting underachieving is certainly a big part of it. Is there a bigger loser of this entire Texan, Oklahoma to the sec thing than the Auburn Tigers? Because Auburn this year ranks, ranks in the number 18 class. They fire, of course, Gus Malzahn last year after a, you know, a pretty good success, but not Alabama level success. And now all of a sudden, both Alabama and Georgia, their two historic rivals are national, are the, the last two defending national champions. Uh, they, again, they went number 16 this year, number 19 last year. And then you're going to potentially have to play Texas and Oklahoma in your division two. And apparently Arkansas doesn't suck. And now the Mississippi schools are coming on your tail. Like it feels like things are going pretty badly for Auburn. And if things are going to be bad when this alignment happens, is this permanent? Is is this going to be a long-term thing for Auburn? Because I'm, I'm pretty concerned at this point. No, I think I think that's fair. Again, like somebody goes up, somebody goes down, and I just – does that program have any momentum right now? No, no. You can get swamped. This is one of these things. There's like the SEC thing, right? Like the SEC, and then it's like it's not, it's not really the SEC. It's Bama, and now it's Georgia and Texas A&M, but you don't – you're not automatically cool. You're not automatically good just because you're in the SEC. And if you're not one of those programs, you can get steamrolled, man. And like that that would be scary to me uh, a little bit. I think I was doing – I was trying to figure out the top 100 players. Again, 16 for Texas A&M, 15 for Bama, 11 for Georgia. The rest of the SEC combined, eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. A decent chunk of them are LSU and Brian Kelly. So it's like – Listen, man, like if the middle of the SEC is no place to be, that is not a pleasant way to occupy yourself because you're going to have a lot of Saturdays that go south for you and you're going to have a hard time selling that debt to kids. Yeah, and and the thing is, 
I'm going to repeat this. I probably have already said this on the podcast. I'm going to repeat this a hundred times before it happens. But whenever there's a realignment in a conference, you have a chance to redefine yourself and you have a chance to be redefined. So for example, the one that I always point to is 2012 with Texas A&M. They're this mediocre program in the Big 12 that loses four games a year and then they come to the SEC and people think that there's something because they win in year one. And I'll even point to in the Big 12, you have Baylor and TCU. They come in, they win right away and it permanently changes the reputation of these two programs. Whereas Texas Tech, they struggle at the beginning and that's what all they're ever known for is struggling. Well, this is about to happen in the SEC and if Auburn's that program that's less struggling... It's going to get bad. It's going to get real bad. I I mean, I don't think that they fall in terms of program stature behind the Mississippi schools just because of funding. But, I mean, they're going to fall behind Botex and Oklahoma. They're going to fall behind Texas A&M. They're going to fall behind Alabama, LSU, Georgia. And then all of a sudden, if Florida is going to get things figured out with Billy Napier, who knows? If, uh, you know, if South Carolina is going to start doing some things, then you're in some real trouble. My last underachieving team is Florida State. And I'm pretty sure we've talked about Florida State. I will add to that and say my top one is just the entire state of Florida. Well, and that's fair, but it's especially bad because Miami and Florida fired their coaches this offseason and they both finished with higher ranked classes than Florida State. That, like, if you, if you're Mike Norvell, it's like, okay, well, this was your chance and you didn't take it and wait till Mario Cristobal gets going at Miami. So Miami finished 15th, Florida finished 19th, Florida State finished 20th, according to what I saw on the 247 Sports Composite Rankings. All three of those schools had two top 100 players in their classes. This is a 20th-ranked Florida State class. Last year, they were 23rd. The year before that, they were 22nd. Last year, they had no top 100 players. This year, they had – or two years ago, they had one top 100 player. They thought they were going to have the top player in this class in Travis Hunter. We all remember in December, he flips to to, uh, Deion Sanders on signing day there. And and, and that that was bad in the moment. But, like, they just – Mike Norvell has had his chance to get rolling. And now I think, like, he missed it. And I think Mario Cristobal in particular at Miami has a chance as a recruiter – to get the state of get Florida kids to go to one of the Florida schools again. Cause I'm sure your point here is like none of the good Florida players stay in the state. It's ridiculous. But I think Florida state's hurt more than anybody because they have the same guy and Billy Napier and Mario Cristobal, I think have a chance to get it done. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, the state of Florida rankings and only one time since 2015, has the top player in the state of Florida stayed in the state of Florida? It's been Alabama, it's been Georgia, it's been Texas A&M. And you look at this year's class, the top player in the state of Florida to stay in the state of Florida was the number eight player in the class. And you mentioned it, Texas A&M gets the number one and number two player from the state of Florida. That sort of thing cannot happen when you have as many programs in the state of Florida that take football this seriously. This isn't some other, you know, I mean, this isn't the top eight kids in the state of you know, Nevada not going to UNLV. This is Florida. This is Florida, Florida State, and Miami. And I think that you're right. I think that Mario Cristobal has a chance to definitely come in uh, and lock down some of those players. We even saw it 
just with the little bit of time he had during the early signing period. And, and we heard from Shamar Stewart today, who was the number 10 player in the class, that, you know, if things had kind of gotten worked out a little quicker, maybe he would have gone, right? Like maybe he would have had a chance to flip, but they only just hired a defensive coordinator in Kevin Steele. So they're going to have a chance right away for sure to, to push for that class. And both for Florida and Florida State, I think that that's big trouble. And But I think that you're right. You know, out of the three, Florida State's definitely the one that concerns me most because I do think that Florida hired a coach in Billy Napier who gets that, who understands how he has to win, who understands where he has to win. Uh, you know, one thing, too, that, that I've heard a little about is that they, you know, Florida hasn't had that pipeline to IMG Academy, which is, you know, not far from from the city of Gainesville, I, I think that they're going to have a chance to get some of that back. Obviously, uh, Billy Napier has recruited players from IMG Academy before. So I, I, Florida definitely does feel like the odd team out because both of those other programs had a chance to to make changes and hire guys who I think are going to do a better job of it. But I mean, seriously, this past year in the state of Florida was a total embarrassment, just a total embarrassment on the field, not even talking recruiting, right? I, I mean, the best team in the state of Florida this past year was UCF by by a lot, by, by a pretty decent amount. That can't happen. You, you can't have three power conference teams in the state of Florida with the history that these programs have had uh, and have UCF lap all of you. It, it just can't happen. And so... I mean, I, I think that that's probably uh, the biggest question that I have heading forward is, is one of these Florida teams going to take control? Are multiple of them going to have a chance to push their way into the rankings? And and if they do, I mean, look, you look at the ACC Coastal, there's plenty of opportunity for Miami to, to go and push to, to potentially win the ACC and have a chance to make the college football playoff, especially with a, a coach like Mario Cristobal, who was able to recruit at, at Oregon to the level that he did. He's going to have an even better chance in the city of Miami. Uh, and same deal with Florida. You know, is Billy Napier going to be able to maximize some of the things that other coaches couldn't? Because... I mean, it's the University of damn Florida. <laughs> like, how are you not getting kids from the state of Florida? It's just not acceptable. And if those two things happen, Mike Norvell is going to definitely have some uh, some questions on his hands. It's hard for all three of those Florida programs to be up at the same time, but they should have at least one of them be up. Like, how can all of them be mediocre with all the talent there? You can't go over three. Again, Travis Hunter to Jackson State. That happened in December to Deion Sanders' program there. And a lot of people are like, oh, maybe Deion Sanders should be the coach at Florida State. But I just think Mike Norvell in the 20, and the, not this class, but the one before 2021, Florida State, the highest ranked kid that Florida State got from the state of Florida was 37th. They got the 37th best kid <laughs> in their own state. Miami, Manny Diaz got fired at Miami. Miami had eight Florida recruits ranked higher than Florida State's best Florida recruit. And I'm sure Manny Diaz is like, why am I getting fired? Why are we giving Mike Norvell a fourth year at Florida State? Or third? It just, it's it's awful. Like, I can't. And they like, he just hired somebody he worked with at Memphis to come in and help, like, in the recruiting office and stuff. And it's like, what are you doing now? Like, how could you let this be? How could you not take advantage when there maybe was a weakness there? So, I, and, and it's funny, Dan Mullen got in trouble during the season for, like, saying something that made it sound like he didn't prioritize recruiting. <laughs> and then they went to Mike Norvell and Mike Norvell said, recruiting is the lifeblood of the program. And it's like, I don't care what he says. Great quote in November, Mike. Could you get a top five kid in your own state to come to your school? It's unbelievable. So, so I will ask, I will ask. So Florida state, I agree. This was an opportunity for them from a high school recruiting standpoint to, to make their mark. And they didn't part of that is because they took 10 transfers. So like when you look at 
I, I mean, I think that USC is maybe an individual situation. Maybe you could even say Nebraska is. But when you see these coaches who have been here for a little while take a big, cl- a big transfer class and a very small high school class, I mean, how do you evaluate that, right? Because, I mean, it feels like when you're Mike Norvell and you've been here for a couple of years, you should be past that, right? Yeah, I, there, I, there's a limit. You can't win a national championship out of the portal. And that's what the standard should be at Florida State. It's like having a safe fall on your head and putting on like 12 Band-Aids. And it's like a safe <laughs> fell on your head. Band-Aids aren't good <laughs> enough. And again, and this is no insult to these guys, but they have the number – and this is the thing, too. I mean, it's like recruiting rankings are really important, but the portal, the transfer portal is so important. 247 Sports now has a transfer rating. So they have the number five transfer class, according to those ratings. But the kids are coming from Albany, West Virginia, Illinois, Arizona State, Louisville. Like The, the Albany kid is legit, by the way. They, he's like the talk of the town right now. But uh, the bigger thing to me is that five of the ten players are running backs or receivers. If you're telling me that Florida State's taking ten guys, I want eight of them to be offensive linemen. Yeah, because you, you can't find high school receivers in the state of Florida who want to come to Tallahassee. What is wrong with you? So very disappointing for Florida State. And again, I do – I think – Mario Cristobal has a chance to regularly stack top 10 classes because his whole thing, he was recruiting. He's the guy who recruited these guys to Oregon. And then it was like, great recruiter. How good of a coach is he? He's you. He's the you through and through. That's why I went back there. And I I think he's absolutely, I think he's right. Doesn't everybody think that he's going to reestablish what it means to be a Miami hurricane. And then it's going to be cool for kids in Florida to say, no to Alabama, to say no to Georgia, to say no to Texas A&M and stay home and play for Miami. I think that's very, very doable for him. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think that there are three really major states when it comes to recruiting, right? There's Texas, California, and Florida. And, I, you know, you can maybe throw Georgia in there. And, and, and I mean, the way that Georgia went swung a national title race. Uh, the way that Texas has gone in the past has swung national title races, even if it's with Ohio State or Alabama getting those kids. Now I think Florida and California have a chance to have their say, and whichever one of the, the new Florida coaches have a chance to, to dominate that state, and whether Lincoln Riley has a chance to dominate California, that could potentially define what happens in the next five years. All right, that's recruiting heavy here on the College Football Survivor Show because recruiting is where the playoff race starts, and we know that. And these guys, as we said on the Tuesday podcast, are having huge impact sooner and sooner and sooner. So this is not something where we're just saying like, hey, in 2024, this is going to be – it's like this. it starts now with some of these players and with some of these best schools, and this stuff determines who we're talking about each January. Again, the Tuesday show, if you like what you hear on the Wednesday show, there's just more of that same stuff with different topics on the Tuesday show, $2.99 a month. You subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Read Shahan at CBS Sports. You were were busy Wednesday writing all kinds of stuff, so just put in Shahan, CBS Sports. You'll find it. You'll find his stories there, and we appreciate you guys spending time with us here. We're going to have a lot of stuff planned for this offseason, as you know, for now. For Shahan Jayaraja, I'm Doug Maurice. And that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.